You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunnett. That's right. You're tuned into another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. And this one is going to be interesting. Because if you thought we were flying by the seat of our pants last week when we were in Nate's studio recording, oh brother, we got news for you this week. We are... I feel like we've got Dr. Frankenstein's lab set up in here yeah, this we're, week. We're basically just shouting into a big empty oil drum and hoping somehow that, that our words find our way onto the find their way onto the internet. It's like we're using Soviet technology from the seventies. It's like you remember that movie War Games from when we were kids? I think I it had Matthew Broderick in it where the computer goes crazy and tries to start thermonuclear nuclear war. That's what the computer the computer that we're using today looks like the computers in that movie, like with the big green type that is was synonymous with the 80s, I guess. Yeah, so you're saying height of technology here for 1986. Yeah, yeah. If we were doing this circa the first Back to the Future, we would be right there on the cutting edge of technology. As for today, it's a question mark as to what will become of these recordings. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I feel like if you and I make it out of here with our lives, then I'll, I'll be a little bit surprised, to be honest with you. I assume somebody's going to die here today. That could podcast. happen. Somebody could get electrocuted. It's like we've got a Jacob's Ladder going in the back. Uh, anything could happen. Anyway, uh, I'm Chad Dundas, one of your co-hosts from ESPN.com, and the other voice you've been listening to, as always, your friend and mine from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, Ben Folks. Ben, aside from... The technological problems that have made my life a living hell for the last four or five days, and I assume didn't really impact your life much no, at all. I've been fine. How have things been? Things have been okay. Yeah, nothing new or different to report. Well, uh, my in-laws are in town. Oh, right. Yeah. So, yes, so they there's are. That. Um, so I thought, hey, you know, as long as I'm over at your house doing the recording, maybe I'll just hang out here for the next like 16, 17 hours. Is that what the bedroll is all about? The, well, I just figured, you know, the ma- bindle stick. What do they call the thing? A hobo carries? Is that maybe, a- maybe you and I, after this, we'll, we'll watch some TV. Sure. Uh, yes. I'll see if you got anything to eat in there. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you'll, you'll roll out of bed in the morning and, and I'll still be here. Maybe I'll even be, maybe you'll, you'll wake up and I'll just be sitting at the bottom of your bed, just looking at you. Doesn't that sound fun? <laughs> Wait, is this a, just for a couple of days, man, and she'll take me back, I guarantee it, kind of a Look, thing? Look, man, I just need a place to crash. She'll come to her senses. Well, as usual this week, the Co-Main Event Podcast comes to you in three rounds. In round number one, it feels like we've talked about Ronda Rousey and Liz Carmouche in every possible way, except for what's actually going to happen when they get in the cage together this weekend. So maybe we'll finally do a little bit of that. And in round number two... The UFC president may have finally come around to the right way of thinking on testosterone replacement therapy. So what now? And in round number three, speaking of TRT, Dan Henderson will try to push his win streak to five fights when he takes on Leota Machida this weekend as well. And uh, we're going to say a few words about that, lest we forget that that fight is even happening. Don't you forget. All that plus tips for the well-rounded fight fan, just saying stuff. And another visit from our pal, Sir Nigel Longstock, for the latest go-round of Master Tweet Theater. But first, like we always do about this time, listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Alex Larson. And Alex writes, I have noticed over the last few weeks, you guys, mainly Chad, have become increasingly cynical towards, towards the UFC's takeover of the MMA market. Is it truly a bad thing that one organization dominates the sport? There is only one NBA or NFL, and they seem to be working out pretty damn well. I understand the UFC monopoly may not be the best in the best interest for some of the fighters, cough, union, cough, but I feel as though it may be in the best interest of the sport as a whole, thoughts. Now, I'm going to do an Alistair Overeem thing here at the beginning and say... Correct him on a fact? Just let me correct you on a fact. <laughs> I would not say uh, cynical. I would say skeptical. And it's not as though I'm becoming more skeptical over the last few weeks. I've always been skeptical from the start. And I feel like you need to be a little bit skeptical anytime one corporation dominates a single industry. 
especially in the way that the UFC is doing it presently, where, like we talked about last week, they're they're starting to dominate or at least take over a lot of the uh, the information dissemination. You know, they're trying they're they're starting to take over the roles that we would normally ascribe to uh, independent media, which is something that I feel like I'm always a little bit wary of because. You know, I'm always just a little bit nervous when the guy who's trying to sell me something is defining the story. You know, I'd rather hear it from from independent uh, people who who don't really have a dog in the fight. And I can back chat up on this. Like, you know, like Josh Koscheck says that, hey, he didn't start being an asshole. He's been an asshole all along. And therefore, in Josh Koscheck's mind, uh, somehow absolved of any responsibility for that. It's true about Chad. Chad did not start being a cynical asshole. I'm sorry, skeptical asshole. Skeptical, thank you. Uh, He's been one all along, ever since I've known him. So that part is true. Uh, I think the important point to make, especially when you start drawing those analogies, like, hey, there's only one NFL, there's only one NBA, and that does it right. Yeah, there's only one NBA, but there's a bunch of teams. Right. uh, It's a different organizational structure than what we have in the UFC. When you have a league and you have a bunch of different teams who – have to bid for an athlete's services against one another, that then serves as a check to keep stuff from happening where, like, hey, the, you know, the owner or coach of a team gets mad at a dude and then he's blackballed from the sport, basically. Uh, that's a problem that we would have if it was just the UFC and then a bunch of local shows and no sizable competitor to the UFC. Is that what do you do if you're on the outs with the UFC? What do you, or, you know, what do you do if you feel like the UFC won't pay you what you're worth? There's no one else to go out there and, and uh, get an offer from. You know, that's why I, I do think you need a Bellator or somebody else out there to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. In, the, in defense of Alex Larson's question, though, I will say that I think that there's been numerous uh, situations over the years where the fact that the UFC is such a centralized and powerful uh, figure in the sport has been good for fans because, you know, especially prior to last year, they were always really, really good at, at kind of staying out of the politics of matchmaking and pretty much always giving us the best against the best whenever it was possible. And I feel like that, you know, as opposed to, uh, to a sport like boxing, which is really fractured in terms of having a bunch of different promoters where, where fighters have exclusive contracts with them, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we can't get fights like Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather. Uh, the UFC has always been able to kind of circumvent that because they are the, the you know, the biggest power in, in the sport. Um, I do feel like that changed a little bit last year when, when they started putting fights together uh, with with guys who didn't necessarily earn it in the cage, you know, Vitor Belford and Chael Sonnen kind of yeah. come to mind as real obvious uh, recent examples of that. Um, and I hope that in 2013 we we sort of get back to the point where, you know, the the thing that matters the most is what you've done to earn the title shot, not necessarily how marketable somebody thinks you are. Yeah, hopefully we will start to move back in that direction. I think they're taking enough heat for it that it will move them back. But I also think, as you alluded to, one of the, the, you know, it's a kind of a, you got to take the good with the bad with a strong central leadership kind of thing. It's like the analogy I always make of if you have a dictator running the country, yeah, there's going to be some abuses. And uh, some things are going to be, you know, maybe unfair, and some people might get taken advantage of, but damn if the trains don't run on time. And that's the kind of, we see it now with the the TRT thing. Even I mean, you look at the NFL and how much trouble the NFL has had instituting HGH testing, even though they seem to believe it was part of the collective bargaining agreement they just struck, yeah. uh, and yet it still hasn't happened, and they're no closer to making it happen. You know, and then you look at the UFC Dana White's response to TRT, where he can just say, you know what, I don't like this anymore. Uh, and we're going to start testing the shit out of you and basically just kind of putting the word out there that Dana White is against this stuff. You choose your yeah. side now. Yeah. Um, Make your own choice accordingly. Yeah. And see, that's the kind of thing – that's, I guess, one of the weird benefits you get of having – just one strong organization in charge is that he can make a decision and it can change in a lot of ways the landscape of the entire sport. Yeah, well, hopefully for the better in, in, in terms of that particular situation. The second question this week comes from Spencer W., who asks, what are your thoughts on Gunnar Nelson's performance and how do you guys feel about the way the media was treating Gunnar Nelson at the post-fight presser, laughing at every quiet comment that he made? Um, 
I thought Gunnar Nelson looked pretty good again in the cage. Maybe the the performance wasn't quite as impressive stoppage wise as the uh, what was a first round chokeout. I think he had of uh, chokeout of uh, that's what you call it, Demarcus Johnson. Demarcus Johnson. Yeah. yeah. Well, why did you look at me and say chokeout? Like no, that? I feel like you're you're just one step away from strangle bar at this point. <laughs> well, I don't remember I know, what the submission was. I, I know you're going to go there. Could very well have been a strangle bar. <laughs> well, I thought you know. First, as far as his performance, it seemed like he's doing the thing where he's like, all right, well, I want to go out there and do some more stand-up this fight. And so you get a little bit of, uh, you see that his stand-up game is still a work in progress. Unorthodox, I would say. It is unorthodox. uh, And it seemed like he was using that fight as like a learning tool for himself, which it's impressive that a guy thinks he can go in there in a professional fight in the UFC and do that. I mean, yeah, especially against a guy like uh, George or Jorge Santiago, as it was pronounced by Bruce Buffer this weekend. Because um, you know he's he's no joke, and well, he's a guy who's who's uh, last time he won a UFC fight. Well, a long time ago. I was just going to say, he's a guy who wins in every other promotion and then can't seem to quite get over the hump uh, in the octagon. But still, like not a guy that you could afford to take lightly unless you were really, really good at what you were doing. I felt like watching that fight, uh, if I was just going off of like the commentary, I would have thought that Gunnar Nelson was just kicking his ass. Yeah, it was one of those fights where you feel like the the commentary team is totally in the bag for one guy or the other. And hey, the hair looked great. Let me just point that out about (laughs) Gunnar Nelson. Well, as far as the stuff about the, the media treatment of him, it's become kind of a thing now. That Gunnar Nelson is the dude who doesn't show any emotion and uh, is just like completely flat, and that's kind of weird but fun. Right. Uh, and everybody's really into it. And so now, like anything he does that forget plays into it, just doesn't outright refute it. People are like, ah, he's doing the thing. He's doing the thing where he doesn't show any emotion. It's kind of like the thing now with Roy McDonald, where people are like, oh, Roy McDonald is a psychopath. And so anything he says that seems like it could be psychopath ish. Uh, we're like, oh, there it is. There's the thing. It's like a guy saying his catchphrase on a sitcom. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I made fun of Gunnar Nelson after his first fight at, at, for, for seeming totally stoic and uh, not pumped in the cage after, after he's won. And if it turns out that's just the way it, he is, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm kind of into it. He's got, like, when you see him inside the cage, he's got a little bit of a Fedor thing going on where he just, like, he looks like he could be about to take a nap. Like, he's not concerned or, like, uh, excited or sweating it at all, which, yeah. I, you know, I think that's kind of, that's kind of cool. And a, as a 24 year old kid, I feel like at this point he, he looks like he's got the skills to go far. Um, I don't know if his full-time future is at welterweight, but, uh, we'll see, I guess. I just wonder, okay, he doesn't sweat a pro fight. Does he sweat anything? Like if he goes to the dentist, is that when he's like, Oh man, <laughs> Oh, Jesus, I don't know how this is going to go. It would be interesting to find out what it is that makes Gunnar Nelson nervous. That sounds like Talking one of those girls. quirky Ben Folks stories that could show up on MMA Junkie. Oh, here we like go. Like a Sunday and about this, 11 o'clock in the morning. Is this what we're doing? Is this what we're doing now? <laughs> I don't know. It just seems like something you'd be into. One well, of your lifestyle pieces. Maybe well, we get 800 words in USA Today about it. Well, thank you for reading, Chad. I appreciate that. Our last question uh, comes from Brendan Faraday, and we're not going right. to read it. No, because, it's way too long. Yeah, we wouldn't. We would literally not have time to talk about anything else on the podcast, and still keep it an hour. Although if we read people his may remember Brendan Faraday as the guy who won, I believe, the co-main event podcast White Elephant Essay Contest right. last year. So, uh, once again, like like George Santiago, he ain't no joke. No, he no ain't, you're he dealing ain't, with he, Brendan Faraday ain't no joke. Which reminds me, by the way, we got to have a new contest for something. No, yeah, we, we got a bunch do. of prizes just we, sitting around my we office. We definitely do. Uh, but Brendan pointed out uh, that we were wrong about something last week. That when we talked about, we had a question of, hey, if Nevada allows a guy to be up to six to one for his testosterone to epitestosterone ratio, and a normal man is around one to one usually, uh, does that mean a guy could conceivably fight with six times the testosterone uh, if he has a, a TUE? And we talked about Vitor Belfort in that light. And it's, it's true, Brendan Verity pointed out, that that's not, if you have a TUE, that is not how they do it. They use the testosterone to epitestosterone ratio for people who don't have TUEs. The idea being that that is supposed to spot guys who are using synthetic testosterone without permission. The problem, though, is that it does not necessarily spot guys. If One of the things that the Balco people figured out uh, 
was you could get around a test like that as long as you were raising your epitestosterone along the, the same lines. Like if you had to be four to one, the test does not make a, a, a difference between four to one and eight to two. Uh, so it does not spot synthetic testosterone necessarily. It, it sometimes does if guys, you know, like an Alistair Overeem's case or Chelsea Snowden's case, weren't expecting to see it coming. Um, the only test that can spot this, the presence of synthetic testosterone is carbon isotope ratio testing, which no athletic commission really does. Um, but it's true that when you have a TUE, then they do additional blood testing uh, to get your exact testosterone levels. But they, it's the same kind of thing, though, where they give you a range. You know, you have to be in this range. And the range is, you know, it's pretty broad. You, you can fall in a lot of different places in that range and still be good. The real concern though, is not just that they're going and finding out what are you at, you know, fight week, basically, before the fight, after the fight, whatever. The concern is, where were you three weeks ago? Because testosterone, synthetic testosterone, it's one of those things, and Nate Marquardt's people found this out, uh, it can be really high and it can come down really fast. Didn't quite come down fast enough for Nate Marquardt, uh, but it the levels can change so quickly, it, it's you can use a fast acting form of, of testosterone and that can, can, you know, it's different from one week to the next. That's why it's such a big concern. And that's why I think Dana White is right to point out, Hey, we don't know what these guys are doing in training camp. Uh, so long story short, Brendan Faraday was right about something. We were wrong. Uh, I guess we're cleared up on that now. Head co-main event podcast fact checker. Brendan yes. Faraday. Yeah. If you have any other, if you want to correct us on any other facts, just send them through our guy, Brendan Faraday, yes. and he'll, he'll get it to us in yeah. a really, really long email. He's the slot. That's what they used to call the main what copy editor him? at uh, newspapers, the slot. Yeah. I can tell you why, but... Don't, you don't want to play around with that. I would go much. on almost as long as your explanation of epitestoster. Oh, maybe you can write a Sunday morning feature on it, Chad. Come on. You, get, you know I don't write anything anymore. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's uh, listener mail. If you have further future comments, concerns, things you want to say to the podcast, fact-checking, uh, you can email it to us by going to the website and clicking the link at the top of the page that says email the podcast. As for now, that's going to do it for the intro portion of the show, and we're going to move right into round number one. Ben, I said at the top of the show that we would finally address uh, the competitive balance between Ronda Rousey and Liz Carmouche uh, in the main event of UFC 157 this weekend. Where yeah, we're not really going to do that, right? No, I thought, I thought you were just saying that. To get no, man, to keep we're going to talk about which one of them is better looking. Oh, nice, because <laughs> that's what all my notes are. <laughs> uh, in the fight where uh, Ronda Rousey is as much as a, a 14 to one favorite. Um, but before we actually get into that, I wanted to talk a little bit about a thing that I think that, that I meant to talk about last week, but they, but didn't. And that is that this fight, uh, you know, as the main event of UFC 157 takes on an even higher profile, uh, slot than it might have before. Uh, you know, if, if it were, you know, an undercard fight or even a co-main event. And I think that's been a topic of conversation a little bit. So I just wanted to know, do you think this is a good spot for the first female, uh, uh fight in the UFC? Yeah, I think that this is the fact that it's the main event is one of the most reassuring things about it. That, you know, if you have a title fight on a card and it's the only title fight on there, it should be the main event. Sure. It shouldn't matter, men or women, what weight class it is, anything. If there's only one title fight on it, that ought to be the main event. Right. It, you don't want to do the strike force thing where, you know, you, you stick them on a, a challenger show or something if it's women fighting or you stick it way down the card. Like, no, I mean, that is as close to. Uh, as you know, gender equality for the UFC's burgeoning female division, as I think we could possibly expect. Yeah, no, I agree with that part of it. I think that, and it's just kind of an f you to the haters. Yeah, well, it it, it is that, it, and or it seems like it could backfire, which I will talk about in a second. But uh, I, I agree with what you said, but but I, I will nitpick a little bit. I think with the placement of this fight, because I feel like for the very first female fight in the UFC, I would have liked to see them maybe on free television. Uh, possibly as as the main event of a Fox card or, or 
even a, an FX card, because I think that the the real drawback here is that you're sort of asking people to pay 50 bucks for something that a lot of them haven't seen before. And I think that the, you know, the, the true strength of women's MMA is that the product kind of sells itself because more often not, more often than not, the fights are just as good as what you would see from men. And I guess the old patronizing adage back in Strike Force was that the women always steal the show. Always the women's fight always steal the show, man. Always the best fight on the card. So I think it would have been Except good. Except when it's not. Right, yeah. I think it would have been good to put them in a spot where, where people could tune in for free or even by mistake and see <laughs> it and, and then, you know, start charging for it a little bit further down the road once people had had uh, realized that, that there's some good action there and that, that the, the female fighters can bring a product that is as good or, or sometimes better than, than what the males do. Um, and my one concern with this being the main event of a pay-per-view, as you brought up before, being an F you to the haters. F you haters? As I feel like if it does a poor number, that's going to unfortunately and I think unfairly be used by the weirdos out there who seem to be actively hating for women or actively rooting for women's MMA to fail. It's going to give them some ammunition, which... Uh, yeah, but wouldn't it just be the same if you put them on a Fox card and then it didn't do great ratings? I suppose. You know, suppose if it did it somewhere might. middle of the pack Fox ratings, then, you know, people would say the same thing. So I don't think you can make decisions based off that if you're the UFC. Also, I think if you're the UFC and you feel like, hey, we have a product worth paying for in Ronda Rousey, and clearly they think that the product is Ronda Rousey, not Ronda Rousey versus Liz Carmouche. Right. You can tell that much. Did you see the ads? Uh, during the UFC on Fuel uh, on Saturday, where they had some ads that were you know promoting the event, and then they had some ads that were just about Ronda Rousey, and then some ads that are about Liz Carmouche, and it definitely seemed like they put their A team <laughs> on the Ronda Rousey ads. You know, you got the James Brown song, you got her in a, an evening gown doing a slow motion walk. You know, it's really snazzy production. And then you got Liz Carmouche getting up there and saying how she is a daughter and a sister. And you're like, okay, so you're a person. Right. That's what you're telling me. Yeah. You you were not, you're not a robot. Right. That's all that tells me. Kind of like when they had Luke Rockhold. He's surfer, a surfer. Athlete. Yeah. Didn't they call him an athlete <laughs> yeah. during that? Well, yeah, obviously he's an athlete. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think that it shows if the UFC says, hey, we think we've got something here. We think people pay for it just like they pay for men's title fights. So, you know, we're, we don't feel like we need to try and trick people into watching it accidentally or ease people into it we're going to put it out there we're going to tell you what it is and you're going to pay to see it because it's going to be awesome f you haters f you haters well i mean i hope that one way or another the the buy rate i hope that we don't get hung up on the buy rate because i feel like it's not going to be a big deal one way or the other i mean if the ufc is truly in this thing for the long haul which i don't think we will know till we figure out who wins uh this weekend then the, the buy rate itself is going to be kind of insignificant if they do a low number then i feel like it's uh you know, just something for them to build on. And if they do kind of an inflated number more than maybe we we expected, it could just be a product of, of the the media attention that this particular fight got because Ronda Rousey did get a lot of media attention. She's on Real this Sports fight. this week. Yeah, and she's not going to always get that. You know, no. Real Sports isn't going to do a thing on Ronda Rousey every time she fights. No. It, well, okay, and I guess this leads us into this particular fight. Right. As you pointed out, Ronda Rousey is a 14-to-1 favorite. In some places. Yeah. Liz Carmouche, uh, about an eight to one underdog. So it just puts you in this situation where she's got to win. Like she's got to go out there and smash Liz Carmouche. Otherwise, uh, you know, you kind of set yourself up to have the, the bubble popped a little bit. Kimbo Slice style. Right. And we, we talked about last week that that seems to be, not to get all spiritual on you, but like the MMA gods seem to take great pleasure in doing that. Yeah. Like, we don't believe in much. No. But we do believe in the MMA gods who are just out to fuck you whenever, you know, you show a little too much matchmaking hubris there. Yeah, well, I don't know, man. Do you expect this to just be a walkover because I don't, you know, what Liz Carmouche is not I guess for the to use the same expression in the third time in this show. She ain't no joke, right? She's a pretty good fighter, but at the same time you feel like there's no possible way that the UFC would book someone in this fight that they felt like could beat Ronda Rousey. I feel like well, it depends if the UFC thinks that anybody out there can beat Ronda Rousey. Well, I mean, it would be foolish for them not to think somebody could beat her because yeah, everybody loses. But I don't I think you you look at Liz Carmouche's record. Um she's not terribly experienced. The 
two you know best fighters she's faced. I would say is Marlos Conan and Sarah Kaufman, and she lost to them both. Right. I mean, she was she was beating Marlos Conan's ass for a little bit there, but then got submitted. Right. Uh, so it, it makes you wonder, you know, how good is her submission defense? Yeah. Um, but she looked a lot better in her two Invicta fights. I still though, I think there's a reason that the odds are the way they are. Right. There usually is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that for Liz Carmouche, probably the obvious strategy here is to, number one, stay the fuck up off the ground because... <laughs> you should be in her corner. Thank you. I would yell that, Joe Warren style. <laughs> Liz! Liz! Stay the fuck up off the ground, Liz! <laughs> stay the fuck up off the ground. I would do the thing where... Punch her in the face, Liz! I would probably be a terrible corner man because, say, if I was the corner man for this fight and Liz Carmouche got taken down, I would probably just be like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, damn no, it. Uh oh. No, I mean, the, no, the, clearly the path for her to victory, if there is one, I think, is to stay off the ground and try to push Ronda Rousey, Ronda Rousey as much as possible because, shit, man, Ronda Rousey's never been out of the first round. Meanwhile, Liz Carmouche has been, I think she went to the fourth round in her fight against Marluce Kunin, right? But she ended up losing, but right. at least she's been to deep water. So I would think, as the layman, just saying, uh, that, that the clear strategy for her to be would be to stay on your feet and try to test Ronda Rousey's stand-up as much as possible, which, you know, you can't really tell from from primetime shows or uh, shots of her training where her stand-up is at. Uh, Try to push her on the feet as much as as you can and kind of try to dictate the pace without getting sucked into one of those judo throws or or the weird kind of takedowns that Rousey seems to get everybody with. But hasn't that been everybody's strategy against Ronda Rousey since they figured out who she was and what she was all about? I suppose so. That's why I said it was clear. that (laughs) That had to be Misha Tate's strategy. And, you know, she looked in a couple of brief flashes like she was capable of doing it. And I would say Misha Tate, probably a better grappler than Liz Carmouche. Uh, and still it happened to her. You know, Sarah Kaufman, a really experienced fighter who knew, you know, had, had weeks to prepare. The armbar. Look out for the armbar. That's what she wants. She wants to get that armbar. And boom, she goes right out there and armbars her. So, I mean, that's the thing that is scary about Ronda Rousey is that she's somebody who everybody knows what she wants to do and nobody can stop her from doing it. Nobody can even stop her a little bit from doing it. Right, like yeah. Misha Tate manages to get out of one arm bar only to get into another one. And that's like an accomplishment. Nobody can do anything about this. And so for Liz Carmouche, just be like, I got it. We, we scouted her really well. We did a lot of arm bar defense. So we're good, right? You're- See, now if I was in the corner, that's what I would do. I would yell, watch out for the arm bar, Liz. <laughs> Liz, the armbar! And then when she got armbarred and she came back and afterwards you guys would be sitting around in the hotel and you'd be like, did you not hear me yelling watch out for the armbar? <laughs> you must not have heard me, right? Because it was so loud in there. Yeah. No, I would do the thing that every fighter's corner probably does where I would be like, oh man, I thought you had her. You had her there for a second. <laughs> I don't even know what to tell you. Damn. Uh, is it more interesting if Liz Carmouche wins this fight moving forward? There's more interesting and then there's better for the women's for women's MMA in the UFC. Right. Probably it would be to more make interesting that distinction. for us. It would be more. Yes. I was going to say, obviously more interesting for me <laughs> being a cynical be, asshole. Well, because then skeptical, because then, skeptical I mean, that, that would be the thing that would test whether or not the UFC is serious. About it would. this shit, right? It w- well, it also though, it would put the UFC in a situation where you can't just do one fight and then quit. And they would have another one booked. So you can't just be like, well, we're going to cancel that other fight. That would be just way too obvious. Right. So they would have to keep going a little bit with it uh, and see if they can find a way to get Ronda Rousey back in the spotlight. It would be interesting, though, to have, the, have things shaken up a little bit, though. I would think, though, this is one of those situations where the other female fighters, they realize how good Ronda Rousey is f- for bringing attention to the women's division as a whole, how that's a, you know... They can get close enough that a little bit of that spotlight is going to fall on them. And then maybe, hey, you find yourself in a fight with her someday and you get a piece of that pie, win or lose. So I can understand how they would be rooting for Ronda Rousey uh, just purely for selfish reasons. Because they want that, they know Ronda Rousey's the star. As long as she's the champion, then it, it brings more attention on everybody. Yeah, I just I feel like it would be so interesting to see Liz Carmouche win because, like you said, then how many fights would they take to then get Ronda Rousey back as the number one contender? Because they've already got the like apparent number one contender fight booked. Uh, at Instant this rematch. Weight. Instant so, rematch. I I think that's why I want to see like what a, would they do that? Would they just? 
go so far over the top uh, in being obvious, like, well, this is the person we want to be our champion. And so no matter how it ends, like if Ronda Rousey just gets knocked out cold and there's no conceivable way that you would want to have an immediate rematch, would they still do it? (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised if they still did it. Anyway, uh, that will wrap up our conversation in round number one about Ronda Rousey and Liz Carmouche headlining. Wait, US. but we didn't talk about who was prettier. Maybe we'll get to that in round in round two. Oh, or maybe we'll talk about it in round three. Because I got like six pages of notes. Yeah, here. I know. I know you've got copious notes over there on that particular subject. Golden ratio. Come on. Anyway, uh, Sir Nigel Longstock is here, and he's going to lead us in another episode of Master Tweet Theater, and that starts right now. that time again where we welcome in noted theatricalist and friend of the podcast sir nigel longstock sir nigel how are you good day to you sir those of you who don't know how this works sir nigel is going to read us off five separate tweets uh all of them coming from somebody in the mma community chad and i are going to try and figure it out and sir nigel's probably going to be a dick about it at some point if experience is any indicator sir nigel when you're ready <clears throat> yes, let us begin. <clears throat> the midget's divot has me in a swivet. The midget's divot. <clears throat> All right, so there was the part where he's a dick. <clears throat> More to come, sir. Tweet the first. <clears throat> I feel like I'd be happier if I did large amounts of drugs. Hmm. hmm. Well, I heard that your guy, Matt Mitrione, deleted his Twitter. Yeah, I heard that too. Several people... Uh, actually took time out of their days to point that out to me on Twitter, which I thought was nice of them. Like, they're trying to give me a leg up, trying to, like, give me a little uh, a little push forward for this episode of Master Tweet Theater. I was hoping you didn't know. Yeah, but, uh, because I guess that you one, do. I, I might have guessed him for that one. I assume the news hit you hard, by yeah, the way. Yeah, no, it's, I'm still technically in mourning. <laughs> well, I guess I'm going to just, I'm going to go right off the bat with the poet Philip Baroni. Now... Do you feel like it's it would be accurate for him to say though that his life would be much better if he did a lot of drugs? Because what are you implying? What no, are you implying? nothing? Nothing. So you're going poet Philip Baroni right off the top. Uh boy, I should have used this time where we were chatting to stall and think of something, but I didn't do that. So I am going to guess a uh, fighter in the MMA world. Come on, damn it! Ah. Uh, can I pass? No. Uh, I am going to guess Danny Downs. Why not? Both fine guesses, gentlemen, and both in keeping with your habit of usual wrongness. It was Forrest Griffin. Oh. Also, he did try using drugs, and it did not make him happy. Yeah, synthetic testosterone. That's a drug, Forrest. He that's a drug. recreational drugs, I assume. Well, I mean, Rampage used it and got his doggy style back. That sounds recreational to me. And look how happy he is. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. <clears throat> Tweet the second. <clears throat> when I do a load of laundry and all the socks have matches, hashtag success! Many exclamation points at the end of that one. Okay. I'm going to say that that is Joe Benavidez. Joe Jitsu. Interesting. Uh, I guess I'm going to guess Ariane Celeste, although it would come as a surprise to me if she ever does her own laundry. Or has socks. Okay, yeah. A solid point there as well. But I guess I've already made my choice. (laughs) Now I have to live with it. I am picturing tube socks, and I'm not completely disappointed. No, it is Rich Franklin. Rich Ace Franklin. Weirdly, I have a harder time imagining Rich Franklin doing his own laundry than Ariane Celeste. At the no, laundry. Rich Franklin clearly does the laundry at the Frank- Franklin household. Yeah? You think so? Oh, yeah. I mean, it seems that way to me. He I'm is... not going to trust Mrs. Franklin to do that, I'll no. tell you. Because he, he is sick and tired of having his, his ice cream colored shorts thrown <laughs> in with his good white t-shirts, and then they come out pink. Is that it? Sure, why not? Okay. <clears throat> Tweet the third. If you have never put Teddy Grahams in a bowl with milk and eaten them like cereal, I don't know what you're doing with you, me, life. Um, what was that at the end? Uh, it ends, I don't know what you're doing with you, me, life. You, me, life? Possibly a Freudian slip. Huh. 
Well, first of all, I haven't done that, but it sounds awesome. And I'm, now I'm wondering how, how have I not done that? They Jeff? are basically cereal, sir. I did used to have a roommate who would put a bag full of white powdered donuts in a bowl and cover them with milk and then put them in the microwave. Ah, the breakfast of champions. And then eat them? And then eat them, sir. Yes, that's correct. I assume that person is dead by now. That person is Lance Hughes. <laughs> well, <laughs> soon to be dead then. Fine. <laughs> but for now, something sure, yeah. well beyond living. <laughs> okay, well, someone who is putting Teddy Grahams in a bowl, uh, eating them like cereal, I assume that this is a person who is not terribly worried about cutting weight. Therefore, I'm going to also assume that Sir Nigel forgot to mention that this was in all caps and it's Pat Berry. Hmm, Interesting. Uh, I'm going to go Miguel Torres here. It seems like uh, his kind of thing. Okay. Both fine guesses. You would have heard the caps in my reading, sir. It is Sean McCorkle. Damn it. God Big, damn it. sexy Sean McCorkle does not know what you're doing with you, him, life. <laughs> well, there's Big, sexy Sean McCorkle's weekly appearance in Master Tweet Theater. Yeah, we can check that one off. He tweets a lot. <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet the fourth. Just spent the last 20 minutes shirtless behind the Roxy taking photos with another shirtless dude. A hairy shirtless dude. Start of a good night. Hmm. Is War Machine on Twitter? Yeah, of course. Oh, Remember right. that one time you guess, quote-unquote guessed War Machine out of the blue? Yeah. Oh, and but then also last week, or last time we did Master Street Twitter, is when he uh, exposed... The conspiracy behind the uh, CIA giving AIDS to blacks and gays. Yes, or something. That, that's correct. Gays and blacks. Gay, gays and blacks. All right. Well, in light of that, I'm not going to guess War Machine. I also can't guess Phil Baroni because I already guessed him. Uh, I'm I'm going back to the well with uh, with Joe Jitsu, Joe Benavides. You're going to guess the same guy twice? Yeah. I didn't even know we could do that. Oh, don't you remember the one time when I guessed Phil Baroni for all of them? I know, I've, I've probably blocked that out. Uh, I am going to go with noted shirtless guy Uriah Faber. Yeah, see, that was my other guess. All right. Both fine guesses, both men rarely seen in shirts, both, as usual, wrong. It is, in fact, Josh Barnett. Hmm, okay, I believe that. I believe that. Wait, so he, he took off, like, his goat whore t-shirt to, to take a picture? Well, it seems like a pretty good reason I, with a shirtless hairy guy. All right. Based well. on his tweets this weekend, I believe he went to a show. All right, well, I guess that'll get Josh Barnett's shirt off. <clears throat> tweet the Fifth will come in three parts. Oh, Jesus. It is a progression of tweets, and I really feel it, it captures the essence of narrative. <clears throat> tweet the Fifth, Part A. Time to get back on the wagon. Part B. The first week is the hardest. Part C. I love burritos. Well, I mean, I have no choice but to go with the poet Philip Baroni here. Oh, uh, I'm going to go with uh, Miguel Torres. Hmm. Interesting. I feel like you stole that from my earlier guess, but whatever. <laughs> Both uh. fine guesses. Only one of them right. It is the poet Philip Moroni. Yes. His words drip like honey into our ears. <laughs> what wagon was he getting back on? I assume the not eating burritos wagon. <laughs> This, this series of tweets were released within, I'm going to say, six hours of one another. Man, well, let's hope that the, the wagon that he fell off of was the no burritos wagon and, and not something else that, that maybe led to a late night burrito mistake. Because we've all been there. There's, we have all made several late night mistakes with burritos. Well, I guess that wraps up another sad edition of Master Tweet Theater. So, Nigel, what you got going on? Well, sir, it's funny you should ask. I am in rehearsals for the sequel to The Great Gatsby. The Great Gatsbyer. <laughs> that sounds exciting. And what role do you play? I play Joe Gertz, another man from Daisy Buchanan's past who is even more determined to win her heart, this time with an army of robots. Well, that sounds like a great performance that I will miss when I go to see the new Fast and Furious movie. Thank you, Sir Nigel. That was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Good day, sir. Well, Ben... The UFC president suddenly and sort of without warning 
pulled a complete turnaround on his stance on testosterone replacement therapy last weekend while the UFC was in England and broke the news coincidentally when he was talking to a bunch of English fans who were probably not too happy about Michael Bisping getting kicked in the head by a TRT-enhanced Vitor Belfort. Nonetheless, do you think that this is cause to be cautiously optimistic about the future of drug testing in the sport, or are we all wise to take a wait-and-see type attitude here? Can it be both? Yes, absolutely. Okay, because I I mean, cautiously optimistic, I think, is a good description of it. Uh, I am encouraged to hear Dana White say that he's now against it, that he thinks that guys are using it. Uh, to cheat, you know, using it as a loophole, which they absolutely are. Uh, and I'm encouraged that he's going to have the UFC itself do something about it, go in there and do some random testing uh, in these guys' camps because uh, that's when it's most likely to be abused is during the training camp. What I wonder, though, is it's still kind of light on details as far as what happens. Like what happens if, you know, Chael Sonnen, like three weeks before his fight with John Jones, the UFC calls him up and says, hey, you have 24 hours to get to a lab. We want to test your testosterone levels. Right. Right. And what happens if he goes and his levels are way too high? Or what happens if he goes three days later and it's like, ah, sorry, I was busy. I couldn't really, I couldn't get down there. I had I run the pizza joint and had some stuff to do. Um, but mean, mean Street Pizza? Mean Street Pizza, yeah. Um, you know, what does the UFC do then? Is the the UFC going to take money out of its own pocket? Is it going to say, well, that fight, that fight that we spent months on the Ultimate Fighter promoting, it's off now uh, because Chael Sonnen failed a a random drug test? Or do they privately say to Chael Sonnen, hey, man, get your shit together? Right. Uh, Well, and I think that that situation right there is is, uh, an argument in favor of the UFC doing its own private testing, especially if you are the UFC because this is could be a very advantageous situation for them. As for right now, my initial response is that I think that this has to be one of the situations where you stand up and applaud uh, the UFC president, uh, at least in the short term, even though I think you're right that it leaves us with a lot of questions, not the least of which are what kind of testing they're going to do, who's going to do the testing, you know, how above board it will be, et cetera, et cetera. But I really thought that this was one of the more hopeful things that he has said in a while. Definitely. And, uh, you know, it, 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 you know, hopefully that they'll, they'll, that he's telling the truth and, and hopefully it wasn't just a, a knockoff comment because of, of where he was in the world at the time, which I don't think it could have been. I no, think, I think it, he's too smart to do that. And he, he expanded on it with reporters, because obviously that's the thing people are going to want to talk to you about right. uh, when they get you in the media scrum after the fight. Yeah. And I, but to me, it's hopeful just because, A, I hope that they do test the shit out of everybody who is on testosterone replacement therapy. And B, I hope that someday they test the shit out of everybody. Yeah. Because that was one of the things that he said when he was talking to the fans was, hey, we can test everybody. Uh, and in the past, he's always said, do you have any idea what a pain in the ass it would be to test everybody? Our last uh, April uh, in Stockholm, I was there asking him about the UFC doing its own testing program, uh, which he at the time, and this is less than a year ago, at the time described as impossible. Right. Uh, and was like, do you have any idea? You know, I've been to Brazil and I'm here and I'm back in Vegas and I'm in L.A. And I was like, well, no one's asking you to do the actual testing. Right. No one's asking you to, you know hold the cup while the guys pee into it or anything. Uh, But again, I think that there's always going to be a problem or even just like the appearance of a conflict when the promotion is policing itself. Sure. Yeah. But I mean, I think for the UFC... It is better than nothing. Yeah, it's better than nothing. And I think at least from the view of the UFC, you're right, it's always going to be problematic. And I'll I'll always think it's problematic. But if you're the UFC, I think it's a really smart thing to do. And I think that, you know, in years past, you could probably have made the case that it would behoove any big time MMA promoter to kind of take a hands off approach to PEDs, because then you could do the thing that Dana White has always done in the past, where if anyone brings up drug testing, you just sort of make a lot of broad statements about the government. And then you kind of allow even if you're in England while you're saying it, where the government does not do anything to you, where you are not regulated at all by the government. Right. The, well, I mean, the point of which was, at least in the States, 
to let the the state athletic commissions take care of it and not really get involved at all, which I think in years past may have been the proper choice. I think now, especially for the UFC, the evolution of the company is at a point where it really is in its own best interest to do private drug testing, you know, not only because I think it's the only entity in the sport that truly has the power and most importantly, the funding to do comprehensive drug testing, uh, but also because it gives you at least the appearance where you can go out there in the public and say, hey, we're one of the most well-regulated sports in the world. Not only do we have government intervention all the time, but we have this private testing program that that we conduct uh in the in a best case scenario for all of our athletes, which is something that I've always said, like why not just write it into every UFC contract that every guy you have under contract is going to take you know three or four random drug tests a year. Well, and I think that that one of the things that was encouraging to me about hearing Dana White change his mind about TRT and talk about going and, and testing those guys is that I think if they do do it and say it's successful. Say that the number of dudes on TRT or seeking therapeutic use exemptions at least drops. Uh, And say that that's not such a big issue anymore because they know the UFC is against it and that the UFC is going to be keeping a closer eye on them. And, hey, you can fuck around with the athletic commissions. You don't want to fuck around with the UFC that much. You notice how when dudes test positive... uh, when it's the athletic commission, everybody wants to file an appeal and talk about tainted substances or tainted supplements. Uh, and then when the UFC catches guys, it's a lot more likely that they'll just be like, "Sorry, you right. got me." Yeah. Um, but you know, say that this is say that this works, and it kind of either stamps out TRT use dramatically, or at least limits it to where we know the dudes. Like, say, that it goes back to being just Dan Henderson and nobody else. (laughs) Which, hey, it's okay when he does it, man, (laughs) as evidenced by the entire MMA community. Well, here's, I'm sure we'll talk about this more. Actually, I'll I'll save it till we get to round three because I talked to Dan Henderson about this. Uh, I have a tease. I have a tease for round three. Yeah, so now you're not going anywhere. Just like when we said we were going to talk about looks and stuff. (laughs) But wait, (laughs) the point I was trying to make say that it's successful Mm. and it has the desired effect on TRT use. Then won't we all just be like, man, look how much good you could do if you just tested everybody for everything. Right. Yeah. Like we've seen how successful your testing program can be. So why not extend it to everything unless you're like, well, we don't want to spend the money even though we could clearly clean up this sport a lot better than anybody else. Right. Which I think is probably the best case scenario for us as you know, reporters or the public at large. The best case scenario for the dudes getting punched in the head by some guy who might be on testosterone. Which is probably more important. Uh, Maybe the worst case scenario, but also one of the reasons why it probably should interest the UFC to do this kind of testing is that, well, remember when Dana White, when when Kevin Ioli was trying to ask Dana White about this stuff at the, 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 media scrum, whenever it was, I don't remember. But, uh, and, and he, Dana White kind of sidetracked the discussion by talking, talking a bunch about marijuana saying, if you started testing these guys, a bunch of them would test positive for marijuana. The thing that I've, I've always thought is if you're the UFC and you're a private company and you do out of competition testing, if a dude tests positive for marijuana or elevated levels of testosterone, when he's out of competition, you don't have to release it to the media. You could just handle it internally and be like, Hey dude, get off marijuana. And then we will book you a fight. Well, in marijuana, is one of those substances, I believe, where they, you know, other testing bodies do treat it differently if right. they catch you on it. And but they can do the same thing with, with testosterone. If your testosterone levels were really high, the UFC wouldn't have to release it or suspend you in any way because they're a private company. They can do whatever they want. They, well, they could also, just internally say, hey, man, get off this stuff and then we can get you a fight and we need you to test clean and then you can come back and make money. Or they could just not test for marijuana. If you're doing your own tests... You can tell them what to test for. Right, yeah. Well, that's that's another part of it, which is why I just changed my example to testosterone because every time we bring up marijuana, the discussion just gets stupid. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think that as many questions as we have and as as skeptical, as, to, to paraphrase Chad, uh, as we want to be about this, hey, man, it's a good good yeah. start. No, this is good. And this I, is definitely a good thing. I don't want to say my heart soared upon. Uh, <laughs> no, re- it's okay. Returning you, we're from here my, to share. My we're Friday, all here to share, man. Just let my, it all out. My Friday afternoon ski outing with my dog, and then getting on the Twitter and having everybody say, "Hey, Dana White is against TRT now." Uh, it's one of those things where you know a lot of people at first were like, "Hey, he flip flopped. He changed his mind." But hey, 
man. I mean, everybody's wrong about some stuff sometimes. Better to flip-flop than uh, just keep being wrong, just so you can say that you you always were consistent. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I got no, no man, problem fl- with that. Flip-flopping is good. Flip-flopping, flip-flopping is good when you flip to the right side. It's one of the things that shows that you are an intelligent person. Yeah. Is that you reserve the right to, you know, gain more information, find out more stuff, and then eventually change your mind. Well, here's the one thing I want to point out that before we move on and to the next topic um but dana white was asked after the press conference on, on saturday you know what changed your mind you know if we'd asked you three weeks ago you'd have said that this was fine what happened and he wouldn't say specifically exactly did what he happened. say that vitor and jesus fucked it up for everybody because that was my assumption here's here's what he said here's the quote there have been a couple situations that have changed my mind about it you know me i'm always telling you what i think anyway but without getting That's into right. it i don't think i have to I mean, when you see these guys coming in that look like they're on steroids, yet they have a TRT exemption, I mean, you want to tell me he's not talking about Vitor Belfort right there, who came in looking just fucking jacked yeah. when he fought Michael Bisping, and that was you know the most recent example, and there was a lot of backlash to that one because Vitor had tested positive before in Nevada, and now he has a TRT exemption, and he shows up looking like a goddamn bodybuilder. Doesn't it seem like he's talking about Vitor there? And Jesus. And, and, Don't forget about Jesus' yeah, role in all of You're this. not getting off easy, Jesus. <laughs> all right. Well, let's do uh, tips for a well-rounded fight fan, which we haven't done in quite some time, and then, then we'll get into round number three. Ben, what this week is your tip for the well-rounded fight fan? My tip for the well-rounded fight fan is a musical tip. Hmm. Uh, as you may know, Chad, uh, the Menzingers. Uh, punk band from, right. from Pennsylvania. Yeah. They swung through Missoula last week, mm-hmm. uh, played what I thought was a, a sadly underattended Tuesday night show at the Palace, which is an awesome basement venue. I mean, if you want to throw back some tall boy cans of PBR and listen to some punk rock, the Palace is probably the best place in Missoula to do it. Uh, and uh, I have their most recent album, uh, On the Impossible Past. Went and saw them live. Awesome band. Yeah. Awesome band live. Yeah. Uh, they have a couple good albums. Uh, if you like punk rock, especially if you like the kind of punk rock where you're like, oh, this is, this is catchy enough where I can tell that this band is tired of sleeping on people's floors and maybe wants to make some money, but it's good enough that I don't care, The Menzingers is, is, is worth a listen. Yeah, no, one of our, uh, one of our listeners hit me up on Twitter a, f- a couple months ago and, and hipped me, pulled my coat to them, and uh, they are good. I like them. They're good. Yeah, good live show, too. And, you know... I want to, if the Menzingers are listening to this podcast, and I assume that they I are, assume they are as well. I want to apologize on behalf of Missoula that more people did not turn out to see your show. I assume it's because no one fucking knew about it. I only knew about it because I follow the Menzingers on Twitter. Right. Uh, and it was a weird week for live music in Missoula. Which it was. Your we, band opened for Fucked Up. How the hell did that happen? Well, I think that that's one of the reasons why probably a lot, you know, fewer people might have gone out to see the Menzingers was that you know, Fucked Up was playing on Friday and it would cost 20 bucks and people had to make decisions and their pocketbooks and whatnot and they decided to see chad's band total combined weight open for fucked up yeah where we did awesome by the way we did really (laughs) awesome anyway uh my tip for the well-rounded fight fan this week also has a a musical tie-in but it is the book Ten Thousand saints by eleanor henderson uh which is a coming of age tale about kids living in the punk rock scene in new york in the 1980s um, and it's probably not going to blow you away w- with its its technical wizardry in terms of writing, but you know it's a good it's a good book. It's it's like a lot of coming of age stories will probably leave you feeling emotional. Ten Thousand Saints by Eleanor Henderson. I've, I feel okay to say that because we're sharing today with our feelings. Are we? Well, I am. You kind of pussed out and backed away from it earlier there when you were talking about your heart soaring. <laughs> but well, okay. I, I guess if that's how it's going to be. Anyway. 10,000 Saints by Eleanor Henderson. If you like that kind of thing, check it out. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty good book. Anyway, that is going to do it for round number two. We're going to go ahead and get started with round number three right now. Speaking of testosterone replacement therapy, Chad. Dun, dun, dun. The co-main event of UFC 157 this weekend features Dan Henderson versus Lyoto Machida in a fight that seems like one way or another probably going to be pretty important for the UFC's light heavyweight division. Now, with all the stuff going on around the TRT discussion, I guess we can't really avoid it here 
And this shows just how prevalent it's become in MMA that it's right back in our faces, whether we want to talk about it or not, uh, with Dan Henderson. You might say Dan Henderson, the OG of TRT. Been yeah. on it since 2007. Wow. I believe was the first MMA fighter to get an exemption in Nevada. Uh, and here I think, this is what I alluded to earlier, but here's a huge fucking difference uh, in Dan Henderson and a lot of the other guys. All right, lay it on me. When you ask Dan Henderson about TRT, he just talks about it like a normal person. Yes. He doesn't get mad. He doesn't insist that nobody ever bring it up again. He, he doesn't say that... You know, he's not going to talk about it anymore. He doesn't declare it off limits in interviews. He'll just fucking talk to you about it like a rational person. I interviewed him last week and we talked about it a good bit and he was fine talking about it. Other guys, uh, you know, Chael Sonnen, uh, did an interview with Chael Sonnen where they tried to tell me they wouldn't do the interview at first if I wouldn't promise not to ask about TRT. Uh, we rejected that condition, by the way, and we totally talked about TRT. But And then Vitor Belfort. Let me read you a series of tweets. Oh, this ought to be good. From, from Belfort? From Vitor Belfort. Okay. Wait, wait let me turn on my, my translator here on You're Google. You're going to need Google that translator. translator. Um, he, he writes a, all these tweets in English, by the way, and maybe should have had a, a native English speaker look them over before he posted them, but whatever. Uh, the first one. This will be the last time that I will talk about TRT. I never hide from UFC that I was on the treatment, but I admit that I didn't admit to the press. I confess that this was my mistake. I am men enough to admit my mistakes. So from now on, guys, please don't fight me if you're going to use this as an excuse. That's it. I never lie and never hide from UFC. Right, and I think we were exchanging emails about this this week, and I can't remember if it was you or our friend Dan who who came up with the the quip, nothing screams legitimate medical procedure like a refusal to talk about it. That was me. I'm going to take credit for that quip. By the way, when you were first reading that tweet and you think, he's when he says, so from now on, guys, please don't fight me if you're going to, and you're like, what? Is, if you're going to use TRT against Vitor or, <laughs> you know, if you're going to have a problem with TRT, no, it's just that if you're going to use it as an excuse. Or yeah, if, if you're, you're going to complain about it afterwards and yeah, don't even bother fighting. If you're going to complain Vitor about him being on steroids, then he, then, yeah, he doesn't even want to deal with it. Um, also, later, after he says that he is not going to, uh, to talk about it anymore, writes in all caps, get it over. A kick on the head doesn't have nothing to do with TRT. Or does it? This calls skill. God damn it, man. Does, does Vitor miss the point so fucking badly? Well, I would not be surprised if he did, right? We've Jesus seen high-profile instances of guys being on testosterone therapy in the past without seemingly very much self-awareness about the possible moral rights and wrongs therein. So, you know, if, if we're just going to leave it up to Jesus and let him guide us, it would not surprise me at all to learn that perhaps Vitor Belfort wasn't thinking about this issue quite deeply enough. Well, obviously, it takes some skill to kick a dude in the head, but it also helps to be fast and strong. Yes, both of those things. But you are right, I think, in your initial point that one of the really smart things that Dan Henderson did, and the first time that I recall him doing it was when Brett Okamoto asked him from ESPN, was that he came out and was very open about being on testosterone replacement therapy, which, and at the time that he did it, I think there was still more wiggle room in our public opinion than there was than there is now because i think with the first time that he came out and talked about it was still at the point when we were all sort of trying to figure out what it was and what we thought about it and whether or not it, could, it was truly used as a performance enhancer uh, and so i think he benefits from that his openness and f from being you know in his 40s which either rightly Although or wrongly that that probably plays into some people's opinions of it he was not in his 40s when he got on it he got on it in 2007. He's like 42 now, I believe. So he would have been, you know, mid to late 30s when he got on it. That's so really we're just extending Dan Henderson this courtesy because he talked about it and because we like him. Is that right? You know, I don't know if we're extending him a courtesy, but I do feel like if you're willing to to talk to people about it and Dan Henderson says that he does his own blood testing, you know, to make sure that his levels aren't getting up too high because Alistair he, Overham style because he doesn't want to get get popped for it. Um, that makes me a little bit, take it a little bit easier on you with this stuff. Also, here's something he said when I talked to him. Um, cause first of all, he said that, you know, fighting was not the reason he got on it to begin with. He got on it cause he was getting sick all the time. Uh, and 
his doctor recommended it. And, uh, you know, he said that he didn't really notice that much of a difference at first, except that he didn't get sick and had a little bit more energy. Um, here's a quote from Dan Henderson. Obviously, I tried to find out why my body wasn't producing it, it being testosterone normally. Uh, and they were at a loss as to why after a bunch of tests. I continue to make sure I stay within the normal range. I would really love for the UFC and all of MMA to implement random drug testing for all athletes. I think that would cut down on people who get on this and they know they're not going to be tested for a while, so they might be abusing it. That, to me, says something where the dude who is on it who is like, I would favor random drug testing for all of us um, because, hey, by the way, assholes, you might be making this thing look bad for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I'm still a little bit skeptical of anybody who's on it, but you're right in saying that. Because you're skeptical. Exactly. We've established that. Yeah, early on. Cynical. <laughs> uh it, it does. It does sound a little better when he says that, and and you know that's probably a good PR move. Maybe even better than insisting you'll never talk yeah. about it again <laughs> yes. via a poorly worded Twitter, like rampage, poorly worded Twitter uh, series series of tweets. I guess. Yeah, it's slightly better PR move. But okay. Anyway, so we move on. Let's talk about the actual fight. Right. Dan Henderson, Leota Machida. You know, when you talk to Leota Machida, he seems pretty focused, like, hey, I want to win this fight, and then I, that should get me a title shot. Dan Henderson, in typical Dan Henderson fashion, is just like, I'm going to go out there and kick another dude's ass, and then I'll let you tell me whose ass you want me to kick next. And that's the ass I will kick. Which is easy to like. It is it's easy. easy to like, that, the, the guy with that attitude. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess for me personally, I remain more interested in watching Dan Henderson fight John Jones just because we haven't seen it yet. I mean, I'm sorry, fight the winner of John Jones, Chael Sonnen, <laughs> uh, because we haven't seen it yet. We're all assuming, of course, that the winner will be John Jones. Uh, Machida, I guess, was kind of a tough fight for John Jones, as tough fights for John Jones goes, which as means tough he, a fight he had a couple, a rough couple minutes there, yeah. sort of, as and then as it could be, choked him unconscious and dropped him like a bag of dirty laundry yeah, against the side of the cage. Yeah, as tough as it could be where, where one dude ends up face down on the mat uh, after a few minutes. I mean, the ending was sort of so emphatic that I would have a hard time believing that they would give Machida the title shot if he beats, if he beats Dan Henderson. I think if Machida were to win this fight, and I think he's the favorite, right? He is the favorite. He's a slight favorite. Uh, then you might see the UFC kind of take their time, maybe figure out what Daniel Cormier is going to do, see what happens when he fights Mir, and maybe, you know, uh, hedge well, their bets a little bit, play well, a little yeah. close to the vest. I think that if Leota Machida wins, uh, that might be the best news Alexander Gustafson gets all year uh, because then that puts him in a situation where if he goes out and, and has a, a dominant win over over the young vagabond, sweet sassy Musasi. Oh, yeah, that's, uh, a, that's, that's another good option. I guess. Then, uh, you know, that might shuffle him right in there before Machida. Uh, but, yeah, I agree that there is some appeal that, hey, we haven't seen this exact challenge that Dan Henderson brings. We haven't seen that against John Jones or against the winner of John Jones and Chael Sonnen, as you say. Uh, there's also the thing, though, with Dan Henderson, like, hey, man, if he's going to get a crack at, at John Jones at that light heavyweight title, you might want to make that happen sooner rather than later. Dude is 42. I mean, TRT yeah. is helping him a little bit, but this shit ain't magic. And more to the point, doesn't this seem like another like kind of weird fight booking on the part of the UFC? Like, if you want John Jones to fight Dan Henderson, I'm not 100% sure why you book Henderson into a fight against Machida, because at least from where I am, Machida seems like kind of a weird matchup for Dan Henderson. Like, Dan Henderson, he's just maybe going to look to land that big right hand on a dude who is notorious, elu notoriously elusive and, like, a really damn good counterpuncher. Yeah, well, that's why I like the fight. I mean, I like that the UFC is not just like, all right, we're just going to save Dan Henderson uh, because, you know, he had that knee issue, so get him back in there. Let's, you know, let him fight somebody, see if he's still got it, see if he's still in the game. Uh, and then if he wins, then yeah. I mean, imagine if he goes out there, uh, lands that H-bomb, as Mauro Ranallo would say. I think oh. you owe Mauro Ranallo a quarter now because yeah. you said that. No, I do. Well, I owe him a Canadian quarter. Oh, so that's like... 30 cents American or something <laughs> yeah. ridiculous. Um, if he goes out there and, and he starches Leota Machida, then I think you got some real heat for a, a Dan Henderson, John Jones fight. Because, you know, like you said, Leota Machida's not an easy guy to, to lay a glove on. It's not like Joe Warren can just be in your corner telling you to, to put your hands on <laughs> get him. Just get your hands on him, Dan. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, talking to Dan Henderson, he says that he feels like. Uh, they're, they're going to spend some time uh, standing up. I think here's, here's the quote from him. Uh, I think this fight will probably be on our feet a good portion of the time, but he'll probably be on his back a good portion as well. 
Typical Dan Henderson right, right there. Easy to like. Yeah. You know, but I think that that's what makes it such an interesting matchup. I mean, I think style-wise, uh, that ought to be a really fun fight to watch. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it. I mean, we've seen in the past, especially in that uh, the Jake Shields fight, Dan Henderson not necessarily holding up uh, his end of the bargain over the full the full extent of the fight. But, you know, then again, even though he looked like he was maybe about to die when he fought Shogun Hua, they went the distance and, and you know, turned in one of the greatest fights we've ever seen. Yeah. So I agree with you. It'll be an interesting matchup. I'm looking forward to seeing it. If Machida wins, then I guess I find myself a little bit less excited about the, at least the immediate future of the light heavyweight division unless the UFC takes a right or a left turn and, and, and gives us a different opponent. Yeah, you know, the UFC level would do anything there when it comes to title shots. That's true. Don't, don't we know that at think this too point. far down the road when, as far as that goes. We'll probably have Weidman fight him. I don't know <laughs> at this point. Anyway, uh, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll, we'll wrap up for this week. Uh, this is the part of the show where Ben and I both make a statement that we are then not asked to back up or defend in any way, even though I know you're going to bother us via email and Twitter about it. Just blatantly disregarding the rules of just saying stuff. Because we we are, in fact, two guys just saying stuff. We're just saying. This week, I'm just saying that I might have to echo the sentiments of Miguel Torres and further ask where that UFC code of conduct is at after Forrest Griffin not only tweeted a, a, the statement, I don't like it when guys say they're going to fuck the shit out of a girl because I've actually done that and it's not cool. The thing about this, though, is that the first time Forrest Griffin tweeted this, it looked like he had some autocorrect problems, and his tweet changed the word fuck to duck, so it said, I hate it when guys say they're going to duck the shit out of a girl. And then because of that mistake, Forrest Griffin went back and retweeted it again, making sure that he got the full extent of the vulgarity out there for everybody. So autocorrect forced him to rethink his tweet and he still went ahead with it? Yeah, man. And that to me just seems weird. (laughs) You were just saying? Just saying. (laughs) I'm just saying that in a press conference... And I use the, that term lightly here. Uh, Tito Ortiz announced the future of his client, uh, Chris Santos Cyborg, as he referred to her, uh, announced that she would be going to Invicta um, and could, that it was literally impossible for her to cut down to 135 pounds. For anyone who saw the press conference, you hear that Tito Ortiz is doing a press conference, right? And you were automatically you're like, oh, this is going to be good. Yeah, train wreck from start to finish. (laughs) There's going to be a lot of of misspeaking, uh, a lot of just using words incorrectly, uh, and then you actually watch it, and it's somehow even worse than you thought it was going to be. I don't know how that's even possible at this point, but it it was. I watched the the video of it, and I was like, I I never thought it would have been this bad. I'm just saying, Tito Ortiz, man, if you're going to do public speaking – Write this shit down on note cards, get several educated friends to look through those note cards for you, and then just read off the damn cards. Some people can go out there and just wing it and, and freestyle it on the mic, and Tito Ortiz, you are not one of those people. I'm just saying, man. Just saying. My favorite part of the press conference was where he said that her career was in his hands and his hands were were solidly on her. Yeah. Or something Firmly like that. around her Ugh, or something. It was, just, it was almost as gross as beautiful fucking body. You yeah, know? well, it's also... Not it's, quite, but almost. It's not encouraging when you stumble around the words at the very beginning and then when you finally get to what you're saying, what you're saying is, her career is in my hands. <laughs> and that's where it should hit Cyborg. Right, oh, God, yeah. he's right. Yeah, I know. My what career. a terrible mistake I've made. Uh, anyway, that's going to do it for this week's show. We'll be back next week, God willing, uh, with another edition of the co-main event mixed martial arts podcast. As for right now, we're done. We're through. We're out. Chad, I, I hope you know that when it comes to getting this podcast on the air, it's in your hands. Solidly. Your hands solidly around it. Firmly wrapped around it. Pressing it. Stroking it. The co-podcast main event podcast. 